Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology podcast, um, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Beth Stovell. And I'm Dr. John Stovell. We're members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Candice Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today, we're really pleased to have with us Jeremy Duncan. Jeremy is the founding pastor of Commons Church in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, one of the fastest growing church plants in Canada. He lives in Calgary with his partner, Rachel, their two adopted kids, and their dog. Jeremy holds a Bachelor of Theology and has received his Master of Arts in Biblical and Theological Studies at Ambrose Seminary of Ambrose University. His latest book is Upside Down Apocalypse, Grounding Revelation in the Gospel of Peace, published by Herald Press in 2022. And so just so everybody knows, uh, our conversation comes in three parts or three movements. Um, We'll begin talking a little bit about Jeremy's scholarship, um, his most recent book. Um, We'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the church, which makes a lot of sense uh, as Jeremy's a pastor theologian. And uh, lastly, we're going to talk about what we call marginalia. So they're kind of the fun questions. Um, Even though they're the questions kind of about the rest of life, um, sometimes people treat that almost like it's separate. But from our perspective as a podcast, we think of it as actually part of what shapes what we write, how we think, um, who we are. And so we're going to end off with that. So Jeremy, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, We're going to start with um, just a really open question. Tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. Well, I did get some of the questions earlier, so I was thinking about them through. Anyone who knows me already knows this. So people in my community here at Commons are well aware of this. If you read it in the book, I even mentioned it. But uh, things that uh, people who haven't met me won't know is I'm a huge fan of the band Pearl Jam. So... Their first album came out in 1991. So I was 13 then. Mm-hmm. So this was like the band, the first band that I chose for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't listening to my dad's music, that kind of stuff. So from 13 now to 44, I have followed them for three decades. I've seen them live in every city I've lived in. I have all the vinyl. Nice. So I've, I made this like a big part of my identity is, awesome. is being a Pearl Jam cool. fan. So. You know, um, I remember one of their lyrics where they use violence and violins, and I remember thinking, oh, that's awesome. So, <laughs> Question for you, Jeremy. Where exactly did you grow up, Yeah. and how has living in Calgary shaped you into who you are? So I grew up in Ontario, um, outside of Toronto, in a town called Peterborough. So my, my parents still live there. Uh, Rachel and I lived right in Toronto, in Scarborough, uh, for a number of years before we came out to Calgary. But we moved here in 2004. Okay. So we're coming up on 20 years now in Calgary. Um, this, is, this is sort of where we've formed most of our life. Both of our kids are adopted. They're both adopted while we were here in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, I started this community at Commons here. Um, so this, this, Ontario was where I grew up. It's where I went to high school. But Calgary's really shaped a lot of me. Mm-hmm. And I think I always think of Calgary this way. Um, Growing up in Ontario, there's a lot of um, manufacturing jobs. You know, yeah. I worked in Oshawa mm-hmm. for a while mm-hmm. with the yeah. GM plant and everything. And there's a lot of that sense of, you know, you, you graduate high school, you do college, you get your job, you work, and then you retire. Mm-hmm. Coming to Calgary, what was really fresh, refreshing for me was there is a huge entrepreneurial spirit out here. Mm. Now, it's not always earned. A lot of it comes from the boom and bust of the oil. Yeah. But, but there's a sense with people that like, you can try things, you can do things. Mm. If you fail at something, then it's fine. You just start over again. Mm-hmm. And I loved that right when I moved to Calgary. And mm-hmm. I think it is part of why I ended up planting a church and mm-hmm. trying some different things. So I, I actually, I love Calgary now. I love the mountains. I love my mm-hmm. kids who are here from Calgary. So all that. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we were looking at working here, um, initially Calgary was the one place in Canada. We thought, oh, we're never living there. Um, and it's been really interesting to, to get a flavor for what this place is Mm -hmm. and to come Mm -hmm. to love it. So, um, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And there's a real like work hard, play hard kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Like people work really hard, Mm -hmm. but then like the weekends are off and like you're out in the mountains Mm -hmm. or, and you're in the snow or you're hiking. And I, I, I kind of lived into that. So yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually also grew up in Ontario, uh, though I was more pretty far from Toronto. I was up, (laughs) you know, 
people from Toronto who referred it uh, sort of on the edge of cottage country, as they <laughs> refer to it, and I yeah, always yeah. refer to it as where we live. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was from the 416, so if, yeah, you're, yeah, if yeah. you're from Ontario and you're from Toronto, you know the yeah. deal. Not 905, Yeah, I was out in uh, 519. Yeah, but I had that similar experience coming out here and discovering, oh, I really like this place. Yeah. It surprised me. One of the things that really surprised me was I wasn't prepared for how diverse Calgary really was. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, really... and certainly in the 20 years I've been here, mm-hmm. uh, that has only changed. So mm-hmm. when I came to Calgary 20 years ago, it was 800,000 people. It's 1.2 million now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's a ra- drastically different mm-hmm. scale of city yeah. um, than it was when I moved here. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been neat to see that too. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Um, we're going to transition to some questions about scholarship and your vocation as a pastor theologian. So that's our next step. Briefly, can you tell us about <laughs> your work and what brought you to this? Yeah. How Specifically around the book be? and stuff? Yeah. yeah well, so, I mean, what inspired this? Yeah. So I did um, my master's with Beth at Ambrose mm-hmm. um, and focused on uh, the work of René Girard. And I am a huge fan of, of Girard and his work on nonviolence. Uh, but one of the things I discovered in sort of looking for a thesis topic was that there was a bit of a gap in the literature around interfacing Girard's ideas with Revelation, mm-hmm. which is interesting Ooh. because Girard talks about apocalypse. It's like one of his favorite words mm-hmm. all the time, but he's using that in a technical sense of unveiling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But it's just interesting to me that for a guy who talks about the apocalypse all the time, he yeah. never deals with the apocalypse that we have in scripture. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is Girard is not a biblical scholar, doesn't have any background and training in that. And so... There's lots of things to criticize in Gerard, but one of the things is whenever he comes up against anything he doesn't like, and he's just like, ah, forget it. He, he has this thing where he's just like, that's, that's mythic thinking. It's not reflective of the Christ. Just ignore it. Yeah. Um, and he does that for Revelation. He's just like, it's violent and it's mythic and just ignore it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, well, what if we actually applied some biblical scholarship to Revelation and we interfaced Gerard's ideas? And I thought, I actually found there was a lot of real resonance there um, so that's what I started studying. Mm-hmm. Then during um, COVID and during the pandemic, there was a lot of, uh, to be frank, conspiracy theories yeah. and yeah. renewed interest Absolutely. in mm-hmm. revelation from a, I think, not very healthy perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, look, I've got all this research and I work as a pastor interfacing with um, regular people who are asking these questions. Maybe what I could do is take some of that work rewrite it for a general audience and focus mm-hmm. it. So the mm-hmm. book at all doesn't um, interface directly with Girard, although those ideas come through in my writing a lot. Mm-hmm. But the book is really about grounding nonviolence or grounding revelation in nonviolence, grounding mm-hmm. in a little more scholarship mm-hmm. to get away from some of the, the more conspiratorial thinking there. Yeah. So it was sort mm-hmm. of a circuitous mm-hmm. route. Like I'm not, revelation is not really my thing. It's not like the book that I wanted to study, yeah. but I kind of came around to it. And then there mm-hmm. was a, a need for it in the last couple of years. So yeah. I'm like, well, sure, I can do that. To what degree did um, your process of rewriting from a mm-hmm. thesis to a more popular level style book, um, how much did that come from your interaction with your congregation and your time here at Commons? So a huge amount. Um, so one of the things I tried to do when I first uh, signed the deal with Harold and they had read my thesis, and we had a sense of sort of the target audience, I actually tried to take a chapter from my thesis and start with it and rewrite it. Mm, Mm -hmm. And I gave it to my wife, and she read two pages, and she's like, I'm not reading this. She's like, this is (laughs) not good. It's a helpful wife, honest wife. mm -hmm. (laughs) So she didn't, she's like, it's not interesting to me. So I realized, okay, this is not going to be a rewrite my thesis. This is going to be a start from scratch, Mm -hmm. which ended up absolutely being the right choice. Mm And so I went back and I really went back to the sort of sermon voice that I mm-hmm. used yeah. and started writing from scratch with that, only referencing my thesis to find the footnotes and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, now, of course, a book is a different voice than a sermon. Yes. Yeah. So it's sort of learning between the three different voices to find that middle ground. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, as a first book working with an editor, 
um, the editors at, at Herald were just extraordinary in terms of helping me refine that and yeah. find that voice a little bit and come out with it. And I think, mm-hmm. I think I got better as I go. I think I'll get better if I do more writing as well. Yeah. But definitely the voice in this book is mm-hmm. much more informed by my conversations and my sermons as a pastor mm-hmm. than it is by academic work. Absolutely. So. Well, and I think that there's a gift in that in terms of you can hear it in the freshness of the voice mm-hmm. that you have here um, and the ability, how accessible it is. Right. And you get to put some jokes yeah. in <laughs> that you crossed out of my thesis for me. Yes. Really. No. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No funny. No funny in a thesis. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually. So I really appreciated this book, Jeremy, quite a bit. Nice. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's nice hearing, yeah, you reflecting on how the pastoral context helped to inform that because I really appreciated the accessibility of it. And you do a number of things in this book that I thought were quite helpful, and I think particularly for kind of target audience of mm-hmm. people who don't want to read a thick, heavy academic book, but would benefit from some good uh, theology on and uh, exegesis of Revel- the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to talk about everything that's in here, but I just wanted to bring up uh, one thing that I especially enjoyed, I find that you had very interesting ways of interpreting uh, some figures like, you know, the beast and yeah. Babylon and, you know, the false prophet, or, you know, also described as, you know, the, the other beast with two <laughs> hand, horns yeah. that sounds like a lamb, right? I really liked how you, accessible and helpful uh, your way of doing this was. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about how you understand mm-hmm. these figures and how you came to interpret them this way? Yeah, so there's there's three figures uh, yeah, the beast from the land, the beast from the sea, and uh, this this woman who rides on the beast, and they represent, in in my sort of uh, reading of it, is politics of empire, mm-hmm. um, the religion that serves to reinforce the politics mm. of empire, mm-hmm. and then the economy of empire, mm-hmm. and how all of those things um, can be in service of evil. As a, mm-hmm. as a force in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Revelation, evil is personified in this great red dragon. And then you get these three characters that sort of serve the dragon and mm-hmm. carry out his mm-hmm. will. So that's, that's my overall picture. Mm-hmm. How I get there, um, you know, without getting uh, too technical and giving away the book, I mean, if people want to read it. <laughs> but, but a couple of things here. I mean, I think um, one of the things that really grounds my interpretation of Revelation is the structure so mm-hmm. I, I really mm-hmm. think it's important to read Revelation in cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what John is doing is he's depending on uh, the Hebrew prophets, in particular Isaiah, mm-hmm. and he's telling the same story over and over again. So the way to read Revelation is not to map it out in a linear way mm-hmm. on, a, on a timeline. Mm-hmm. It's to see him coming back to ideas over and over mm-hmm. again and giving them more nuance yeah. or a different way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And at a broad strokes, he tells a story of how Christ impacts us at a personal level in our neighborhoods and in our churches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then he tells the story of how Christ changes our systems and structures, our governments, our empires, mm-hmm. our politics. And then he tells the story of how Christ uh, uh, overcomes evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those three characters fit in that third category mm-hmm. uh, when the dragon appears, and then you get these characters. And how you interpret them is is complex, but, but there's a couple of things that are important here. First of all, people really want to jump to, like, this is the Antichrist, or this is this politician, mm-hmm. or this is that. Mm-hmm. One of the things you have to understand with Revelation is this is a particular genre called apocalypse, yep. mm-hmm. and that genre has different tropes, and those tropes are being used by John in particular ways. Mm-hmm. Now, we use metaphors all the time in language. One of the ones that I, example I use in the book is this. If I said to you, you know, the bears destroyed the eagles, yeah. <laughs> you know I'm talking about football. <laughs> even yeah. though uh, that's a metaphor, mm-hmm. and even though bears and eagles can represent like the U.S. and Russia, mm-hmm. and right now Russia's resurgent, and we're not in the Cold War, but, you know, it could be that. But, like, you have couple interpretive options you filter it through the conversation mm-hmm. and without any explanation, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem for us is we're so far removed from the metaphors yeah. used mm-hmm. in Revelation mm-hmm. that if we don't do a lot of research and a lot of work, yeah. we're going to jump to really weird conclusions. Mm-hmm. Because if someone got a hold of this interview a thousand years later and just heard me say the clip about bears defeating eagles, mm-hmm. they might run wild with that on all kinds of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so once we really dig into... 
these images of the beast, these images of the woman on the horse or mm-hmm. on the on the beast, um, you start to see resonance with mm-hmm. images that are there in in Roman literature mm-hmm. and Roman imagery. So, mm-hmm. a couple of quick examples: the woman sits on seven hills. Well, the seven hills of Rome is a very common image in Rome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something they spoke to all the time. She has a sword and it's pointed down. That represents peace. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly this woman's name Babylon but she's clearly a representative of Rome Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then in the way she's described it talks about her having all these adulteries with all these merchants Mm -hmm. you know her doing all these things so this is this is Rome who's in bed with that's the Mm -hmm. metaphor Mm -hmm. all of these merchants Mm -hmm. and then when you read closer what you realize is they're not merchants who are just selling products they're merchants who are selling bodies human Mm -hmm. bodies Mm -hmm. the language in Revelation is not even persons it's just like they're taking bodies mm-hmm. to market and selling them. Yeah. And it's just yep. talking about the way that economies can reduce us down to commodities and abuse mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. and take advantage of us. Yeah. And then the other really interesting example is, is the beast from the sea, which gets the number 666. Yeah. So that one gets mm-hmm. lots of speculation. Yeah. yeah. But in scholarship, we have this really neat thing because textual variants give us two options, 666 or 616. Mm-hmm. So different mm-hmm. textual variants. The thing is, both of those tell us this is a reference to Nero, depending mm-hmm. on how you spell it. Mm-hmm. Kaiser Nero, Kaiser Nerone. Mm-hmm. If you add those up in Gematria, you get 616, you get 666. Mm-hmm. What that tells us is the riddle was mm-hmm. so clear mm-hmm. to the people reading it, the scribes were changing the number based on the pronunciation they were more familiar with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If they would say Kaiser Nero, they mm-hmm. would say 666. If they thought their audience was more familiar with the pronunciation Kaiser Nero, they were like, well, I'm just going to change it to 616 because right. people will get the reference better. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Nero is not the beast. The beast is, again, a reference to the politics of empire mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that beast has a head that has a fatal wound. And mm-hmm. Nero died, but there were rumors that Nero was going to come back. Yeah. And what John is saying here is, look, um, you're worried about Nero, you're worried about Domitian, uh, you're worried about who's ever the president right now in America. Yeah. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. because if you kill them, another one will rise up and mm-hmm. take their place. Mm-hmm. Another head will be there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we have to understand is these images were so clear to the audience mm-hmm. that they would, they would make adjustments in the text to make mm-hmm. sure everyone knew what they were talking about. Yeah. And what we want to do sometimes is instead of thinking about the big picture of politics, religion, economies, all of which we are a part of, mm-hmm. right. it's much easier yes. for us to say, oh, Barack Literally. Obama is the Antichrist yeah. and we yes. don't need him. Or Trump is yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the, the beast from the land and we need to worry about him. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, no, we are participating in these systems right yes. now. Mm-hmm. And that means we're implicated in the mm-hmm. judgment that Revelation is talking about. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. A more thorough analysis of the images based on a little history and a little scholarship, um, it not only helps us exegete well, mm-hmm. but it implicates us in what Revelation is trying to challenge us about. And that's mm-hmm. where I think Revelation gets really interesting. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things, the language of coming out of Babylon and the call mm-hmm. to come out of Babylon and the merchant's lament at the loss of Babylon. Um, and one of the one of the scholars, I think it's Richard Balcom, has a conversation about the idea of like, do we locate ourselves in that lament? Yep. Like, are mm-hmm. we part of the merchants who'd cry if Babylon fell? Mm-hmm. And what is Babylon, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that there's a there's that piece. I love that there's that um, the sort of local and the political um, and the cosmic as like big pieces of how we come to this and the ways that you've approached that. Yeah, as soon as we turn these characters into people we can point a finger at, mm-hmm. then we're able to sort of disabuse ourselves of any... Yeah. Um, implication in what mm-hmm. Revelation's saying. We just get to yeah. say, oh, they're the bad guy and I figured it out. Yeah. When I think Revelation is much more interested in saying, hey, as a follower of Christ, what is the implication for you in the mm-hmm. world? Where are mm-hmm. you going to separate yourself yes. from what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you going to challenge those systems and where are you going to yeah. create something that's better? 
That connects to um, the subtitle that you have of your book mm. um, and the idea of a gospel of peace. And something that I think is really interesting about reading Revelation um, as in that gospel of peace sort of framework is the relationship between suffering, which we see in different ways pictured, um, and the idea of hope that mm-hmm. exists in Revelation. Should you talk a little bit more about how you see hope coming to the surface in the book? I think it's one of those books that people get real nervous about yeah. um, and maybe don't think of it as a hopeful book. And um, I feel like that's so much a part of how you're, what you've done in your book in response. So I think one of the things that we really need with Revelation is to, and this, this is the subtitle, Grounding, Revelation, the Gospel of Peace, is to root what we see and what we interpret through the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. Mm, yeah. So yes, sometimes in your Bible, the Jesus of Revelation will be in red letters. Uh, and that's fine. But that is still... Uh, a prophet's interpretation of Jesus. Um, now, the Gospels are not pure history. They're not mm-hmm. objective. I understand that. You still have Gospel writers who are mm-hmm. imposing their own uh, memories and interpretations of Jesus on the text. But Revelation is a step removed even from that. Yeah. It's also a particular genre. Mm-hmm. So to hold those equally and say that Revelation equally informs the Gospels as the way the Gospels informs Revelation, I think is a mistake mm. because this is such a different genre that mm-hmm. requires such specific rules to make sense of it. Yeah, I think the only way we can do that is to root ourselves in at least what we can access of the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so all through my book, the sort of, sort of central conceit of the book is every chapter there's a gospel reference and I'm going back mm-hmm. to a gospel and I'm yeah. saying, okay, we're seeing this. Where can we find something similar in the gospels here? Mm-hmm. So I lay out in chapter one, I say like, I'm not doing an objective reading of revelation mm-hmm. here. I'm doing a very specific type of reading, which mm-hmm. is a reading through the Jesus that I met in the gospels. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to make sense of this apocalyptic text that I read here. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go to the question of hope, I think that becomes really important mm-hmm. because there's a kind of hope that says, Um, our hope is in God being as terrible as the bad people were to us. Hmm. Hmm. And that's what we hope for, retribution. Mm -hmm. That, to me, doesn't make sense of the Jesus that I meet in the Gospels, Mm -hmm. whose uh, image and whose example is one of self-giving and nonviolence, even to the point of death. And in that, Mm -hmm. there's redemption. Mm -hmm. So to flip that and to say, well, now there's a new Jesus— who's nothing like that Jesus, mm-hmm. to me that feels like a distortion of, of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely think there's a lot of hope in Revelation, but yeah. I don't think it's in that Jesus is going to crush the bad guys the way the bad guys have crushed us. I think it's in the inversion of, of what we see as power, the inversion mm-hmm. of what we see as winning, mm-hmm. and the inversion of what we see as transformation and redemption. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a motif or a meme that John will use where he says, I heard one thing yeah. and I turned and I saw someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think very clearly what he's doing there is he's saying, you've heard something about God. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. God is the lion of the tribe of Judah, warrior, strongman leader. Yeah. But I turned and I saw a lamb looking as if I had been slain. Mm-hmm. So you're expecting yeah. this. He's telling you what you've heard. Mm-hmm. And then he's saying, but no, it's better than this. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's hope in that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's in a different kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's not in a it's not in a um, over and against the bad guys. It's in a reversal of of yes. of the narrative yeah. and a reversal of the bad guys. And that this is how God overcomes through mm-hmm. nonviolence and through mm-hmm. self giving. So the cross, I think, in John's imagination, is not the low point. It's the high point. Hmm. It's the point where Rome is shown as impotent look, they did their worst to Jesus and it didn't stop him. Mm -hmm. Now, didn't stop him, not because he comes back and crushes them the same way, Mm -hmm. didn't stop him because love can't be stopped and Mm -hmm. grace can't be stopped and sacrifice can't be stopped. So there's there's huge hope. And then you go through the narrative of Revelation and it comes around to this idea of the world being transformed and the world Mm -hmm. being healed. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the linchpin verses is in Revelation 11, where you get to the end of the second cycle and it says, now the world has become the kingdom of God. Mm, and yes. then it says, now comes the time to destroy that which destroys God's earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not, now comes the time to destroy the earth and destroy, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, send everybody to hell yeah. and do all that. Yeah. Stuff. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, 
in, in Revelation, destruction itself will be undone. Mm-hmm. You know, I yes. used from Beverly Gaventa that, that phrase, you mm-hmm. know, it's the destruction of the anti-God forces of sin and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what's being undone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can't defeat death with more violence. You yes. can't defeat sin with more vi- sin. Yeah. You have to defeat those things with self-giving mm-hmm. love. And that's the hope that John keeps pointing us back to. Absolutely. And that's harder. Yes. Right? Like it's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. much easier to think like the Avengers, like Tony Stark's <laughs> going to show up and blow away Thanos mm-hmm. and yeah, everything yeah, to be yeah. set right. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, the point isn't Mm-hmm. that the dragon is going to be killed the way the dragon killed us. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the point is the dragon is going to be made meaningless, impotent yes. in the world, and the world will mm-hmm. be changed. It reminds me of um, a quote um, from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, from one of his books, um, referring to the idea that darkness cannot be right. destroyed by darkness, right. um, that really only love can do that, which I think is a really, it's such a powerful piece of that sort of nonviolent way of approaching how we interact with the forces of suffering, violence, darkness in the world around us. Um, and that our response of love, um, is really the one thing that can undo that. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is just such a powerful piece of what you're saying. I, I I mean, I just this week I was reading Judith Butler, um, the force of nonviolence, and she's talking Mm -hmm. about this idea that, um, as soon as we stop seeing ourselves distinctly and only as individuals, mm. but we see ourselves as a part of a collective, you start to understand how um, impotent violence is to fix anything. Yes. Because now, you know, um, if I do any violence to you, I'm injuring myself mm-hmm. because I'm seeing us as community here. Yeah. And as soon as we begin to see ourselves as community, as soon as we begin to see ourselves as part of a whole, I think the mm. way that Jesus is inviting us to, we realize we need a better imagination mm-hmm. for hope. We need a mm-hmm. better imagination yes. for how things are going to be healed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very much what John is doing. John keeps building up our expectation. Mm-hmm. And then just at the last minute, he keeps flipping it upside down on us. Absolutely. And this is the one of the things with Revelation is you have to, you have to read through to the end of a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. Because you can mm-hmm. spend all your time trying to figure out you know, what this trumpet means. Right, yeah. But then you'll get to the end of the trumpets and John will say, it doesn't matter. None of that's going to happen yeah. because the way that God's, mis- God's purposes mm-hmm. are going to be accomplished is through the mystery of self-giving. Mm-hmm. You know, see, you're like, oh, I just wasted a whole bunch of time trying to figure out what this <laughs> image meant and then John told me it didn't matter. Yeah. Spent all this time trying to figure out, oh, well, how is Jesus like the lion of the tribe of Judah? And then he tells you, nope, he's not. He's, yes. he's like a lamb slain. Yeah. So you got to keep finding the narrative arc, find the cycle, mm-hmm. read through to the end yeah. and see how he's subverting your expectation. I love that part of the book. Yeah. Well, and I think something that you do really well is to read the images as a whole rather mm-hmm. than trying to read just a piece. Right. And I think that that's, that's a, one of the gifts of trying to sort of see it as a bigger picture. Um, you mentioned um, the side of, you know, thinking in community. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found really powerful is um, I've been working in truth and reconciliation work mm-hmm. here in Calgary. And the more I think in terms of a community and how we impact each other, whether internally as Christians or even beyond that, when we're interacting with people who are, who are not Christians, thinking about that has deeply impacted how I think about the choices that we make and how we think about who's in and who's out. Um, and, um, and I think that there's something really powerful about what restoration means then in light of that. So um, I wanted to, to we're going to go to our second sec- sort of set of questions, but we've kind of already been touching on some of them anyway, um, which is around um, scholarship and relationship specifically to the church and to Christian life. Um, and so we'll start kind of asking you some of those mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. So again, this is something that uh, we've already started to touch on a little bit, but I love loved it so much. I want to, I'm happy to come back to it. <laughs> so I really appreciated how you highlighted those spheres uh, where revelation takes place, that local sphere and then that sort of broader political economic sphere and then the cosmic sphere. And one of the elements I really appreciate about Upside Down Apocalypse is how you point to revelation, not just as being you know, like about an ancient past or just about some distant future or not so whatever, but, but what it means right now. Mm. So, and how that's been the case really for Christians all throughout history. It's always been about us now. Um, and so I'm just want to invite you, can you share more with us now about what you think that means for Christian lives today? What does it mean to live in the light, in light of the apocalypse? Yeah, I think today? so in, um, 
revelation circles, you know, you get these sort of camps of how people read things. And, you know, I, I talk in one section of the book about what I see as the problem with preterist and futurist, which are sort of opposite ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the futurist is that John is seeing the future and our job is to find out what he was talking about mm -hmm. in our time. We need a decoder ring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and ironically, everybody seems to think that all those things are happening in their lifetime, of course. regardless mm -hmm. of when they've lived over the last 2,000 years. Uh, but, but the other option is the preterist, which is, oh, this is all about Rome. Mm -hmm. And it's about what was happening in the Roman Empire. And it's just John trying to encourage the churches at the time. And I argue that what we need is something in between, which I you know, call a literary approach to mm -hmm. it, which yeah. is essentially the idea that um, obviously, I think, once you do the research, you realize John is using images from the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not even all that hard to piece together once you do a bit of research. Yeah. But I don't think John thinks Rome is the problem. You know, and, and I think um, you know, the, the 666 and the Nero is a good example there. Um, I don't think John thinks for a moment that Nero is coming back. I think he thinks Nero's dead. Nobody comes back from the dead other than the lamb. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But John's point is, we tell ourselves these stories mm -hmm. and people rise up again to take places of power and they mm -hmm. oppress mm -hmm. over and over again because that's what humans do. Mm -hmm. That's what we do to each other. Yeah. And that is relevant regardless of whether it's Nero in power or Domitian, mm -hmm. who I happen to think is in power when he's writing. Mm -hmm. But even that is John essentially kind of throwing shade at Rome and saying, you guys don't <laughs> matter. Like, mm -hmm. There'll be another empire after you, yeah. and there'll be another empire after that, and they'll make the same mistakes again. So if you're a Christian living under Rome in the first century, he is telling you, hey, keep faith. Stay on this path of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Don't allow that to steal your imagination of what's good. Mm -hmm. Don't allow it to steal your generosity from you. Mm -hmm. uh, don't let it turn you insular into your community. Continue to face outward mm -hmm. um, because Rome will fade away. But that becomes a timeless message. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one that's just as relevant when it's the church who gets into power and mm -hmm. we're the ones oppressing yeah. people. It's just as relevant when the church is sending, you know, colonial missionaries around the world doing terrible things. It's just as relevant today when you've got, um, you know, America imposing its will on the world. You've got China, you know, rising up in power. The, the whole point of the book is when humans get power, this is what we do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We try to impose our imagination in the world on everyone. Mm -hmm. And we try to make everyone believe that the, that the best tomorrow can bring is more of what today already has. Mm -hmm. That's what an empire wants you to believe. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Is right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you can have a little bit more money than today, but you can never not be a consumer. Hmm. Like, like mm -hmm. that's, that's what the capitalist mm -hmm. empire wants you to believe. Yeah. yeah. What John is trying to say is don't let that squash down your imagination so much that you lose sight of the goodness of, and the grace of Jesus that's all around you all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means that Revelation can be a meaningful text for me as I teach through it with my community here but I also don't have to steal it from Christians a thousand years ago who believed it was important for them too. Yeah. Like I don't need yeah. to say, no, you guys are wrong. It's all about the 20th yeah. century. It's no, it was about, about their time. Yeah. And us. It was yeah. about mm -hmm. the first century. It's about us today. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, um, first of all, a more faithful way to the text of what John's writing, mm -hmm. but also a way that allows me to preach it, to learn from it, Mm -hmm. without needing to center myself in history, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't yeah. need to be sort of arrogant about that, that yeah. I live at that moment. Yes. We are in the moment. Right. No one else is in the moment yeah. but us. We are so. in the moment, but so has everybody else been. <laughs> exactly. And a thousand yeah. years from now, they will still be in that moment again. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think it really becomes timeless in that mm -hmm. kind of sense. Mm -hmm. And again, when you're talking about politics, religion, economics, I mean, when are we not as human beings going to be wrestling with mm -hmm. those systems and structures in our world? Yeah. I imagine that um, some of that has played into your preaching mm -hmm. um, and kind of how you've shared these thoughts. I'd love to hear how do you see the process of working on something like this flowing into the messages you preach mm -hmm. when you're here at Commons? So I think a lot of these ideas flow into a lot of my teaching, regardless of whether I'm doing revelation. I mm -hmm. think a lot of what um, 
Christianity has, and certainly not everyone, there's certainly pockets of the church that have always maintained this, but at times, uh, Christianity, and at times, if I'm being critical, sort of white evangelical Christianity has lost sight of this sort of social aspect of what it means to be Christian, Mm -hmm. that uh, we are not here ever to coerce or manipulate or impose our view on anyone. Mm but we are here to participate in a more just world, mm-hmm. in a world that is more accessible for everyone around us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we've very much individualized what our faith is yeah. to thinking the right things mm-hmm. um, and not so much living in a way that makes the world easier for my neighbor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think this, this brings us back to that. But specifically in teaching through Revelation, you know, we got we, we you know we just went through the trumpets chapter mm-hmm. on Sunday because we're we're teaching right. through the book right yeah. now in the okay. same way right Very now. Very good. Yeah. But yeah. I, you know, I got to the end of and and part of what I was saying is um, the, the trumpets is all of this building up of like, hey, we could do it your way. I could do all these terrible things to people, or we could do it my way, which is the mysterious mm-hmm. power of faithful, nonviolent witness in the world mm-hmm. that will change people's hearts. Mm-hmm. And what I talked about is. You know, sometimes we think of Christianity as just memorizing ideas about God Mm. and Mm. not really deeply allowing the way of Jesus Mm. to inform our imagination about what is good in the world Mm. and what we're going to participate in and the ways that we're going to interact with a neighbor Mm -hmm. and not just in convincing them of what we believe, Mm -hmm. but actually participating more faithfully mm-hmm. in conversation, in transaction, yeah. in all of these different things, and in voting, you know, like yeah. in all mm-hmm. of these ways. I mean, we talk about politics and stuff. Yeah. I'm certainly not interested in telling people how to vote, right. but I am interested yeah. in saying that as a Christian, our vote should not primarily be motivated by what that will gain for us as individuals. Yeah. It should be motivated by what we think is the best way to create a more just, more accessible world for all of us that live in this together. Now we can debate about how we get there, yeah, yeah. but if that's your goal, then I think that's a Christ-like approach to being politically active in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If your goal is, I want lower taxes or I want this specific you know, policy enacted mm-hmm. because it's good for me and a very tight circle that's around me, mm-hmm. that's not a faithful way to participate politically mm-hmm. as a Christian. Mm-hmm. So I think even these sort of abstract narratives have a practical theology element Mm -hmm. that comes down to what does it mean to be faithful Mm -hmm. um, with our world? And the other one being, you know, when we talk about religion, we talk about those three characters. Mm -hmm. I think think one of the real critiques that John is making in Revelation is that religion can very easily fall in step with the political order and can uncritically support that political order. Yes. And... If our religious expressions are not constantly checking ourselves for, is this just the default politic? Yeah. Or are we challenging uh, for a different type of world? Mm-hmm. Um, then I think it's, it's very easy for us to slide into something that just sort of floats mm-hmm. with the river yeah. rather than moves counterculturally. Without even realizing it, now we've reached the spot where... Yeah, it looks like a lamb, but it yeah. sounds like a dragon. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You, you sound like a lamb, you're saying the good things, but you're supporting policies mm-hmm. that are enacting mm-hmm. violence on people, mm-hmm. yeah. even if you're not aware of it. Yeah. And that's a really dangerous place to be. I think, you know, f- from, a, um, from a faith perspective, mm-hmm. I think it's a really scary place to be when you're so disconnected that you are supporting violence in the world, but you don't even countenance it in your own life yeah mm-hmm. you know like yeah. that that then gets really hard for spirit mm-hmm. to sort of get through those defenses and speak to you and soften your heart and challenge mm-hmm. you in new mm-hmm. ways so. well, you know that's part of the conversation um i do work with community organizing here in calgary and um i, I find this interesting space where all political people want me to be political the way they are political right. and i often i often say to my students you know being apolitical doesn't seem to me to be an option if we look at a book like Revelation. And and I think that's one of the points that you're making. But also being political in only one direction without any critical thought about which direct, why you're in this direction. And is that the kingdom of God? And so one of the things I I think is really important to come back to, and I love that this is a part of kind of the thinking of, of where you're going with it too, is, you know, ultimately 
the king of all kings is Jesus, not whatever political person is trying to claim through the empire, hey, I'm the great king. And so there's something about that that coming back over and over again affects how we think about what it means to be to be political or engaged. Um, to be able to be critical because we actually are seeking the goodness that comes from this king, um, who is the who is the lamb who is slain. And so it reminds me actually of something else, a question that I um, have actually have on my list, um, which is, um, <laughs> you know, uh, something I talk about in class a lot is the idea of worship and justice um, and their intertwining. And, you know, Revelation is a book that has a lot of worship imagery in it. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how some of those worship images in revelation um what do you think it means for how we think about worship today mm. um yeah that's i mean it's an interesting question so the the worship imagery which is you're really profound and, and really common in revelation i think it's very easy to read that through our um well, wherever, wherever we're coming from, but for me mm-hmm. particular, sort of westernized version of church services because mm-hmm. we hear them singing songs right, yeah. and we see them raising hands mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, that's the music part of the service. Right. I know that. I know that. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> so we think of it in that context yeah. when um, in, the, in the context of an apocalypse, those moments are very politically charged. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a couple examples here. So one of them is you get these... Um, Four living creatures, and they're super weird, and they got eyes all over and different faces yeah, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, it's one of the weirdest images in Revelation to picture. Mm-hmm. Once you get away from that, though, and you look at the literature, you realize that's one of the easiest images to make sense of, though, mm-hmm. because that shows up all through Hebrew literature mm-hmm. in, yeah. in the Hebrew scriptures. It shows up in almost every apocalypse because there's a lot more apocalypses than just Abs- Revelation. Yeah, absolutely. And this idea of domesticated animal, wild animal. Mm-hmm. The eagle, which sort of represents the birds of the air and fish of the sea together, because mm-hmm. that was sort of a category, and human, what this represents is a rightly ordered universe, mm-hmm. worshiping rightly, mm-hmm. and all these eyes, you're not really meant to like draw this, you know, a thing with eyes popping out all of its body. That's a meme that means yeah. they see the world clearly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And because they see the world clearly, they worship mm-hmm. the lamb on the throne. Mm-hmm. So... That's a very political image to say, hey, we can have a whole universe that's mm-hmm. rightly ordered around the example of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's going to have massive implications for our politics. That's going to have massive implications for what we do here and then how yeah. we live when, when we leave this room. Yeah. Um, and so if we equate just that to the singing part of church right. and not to the rightly ordered universe yes. that the image is pointing to, we're mm-hmm. going to miss out on it a lot. Again, another example would be um, one of the switcheroos that John does where he says, you know, af- after the, all the seals, he talks about, hey, I saw things are getting worse and worse. It's terrible. And then I saw, you know, a, a righteous remnant that was saved and it's 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. So 144,000, this tiny little group that's saved. And he says, that's, that's what I heard. That's what you've probably heard. It, salvation is like just squeaking through in that tiny little number. But then he says, I turned and I saw an uncountable multitude mm-hmm. from every nation, every tribe, and all of them worshiping the Lamb. Mm-hmm. That image of worship, and they're all singing. Yes. They, they sing a big song there. But that Im- image of worship is specifically about countering our imagination of salvation is for the few mm-hmm. and salvation is for a tightly prescribed group, yeah. the 12 mm-hmm. tribes of Israel. Yeah. Now, that, that's a specific critique, but that goes for any ways that we say it's our group, not the other group. Yeah. yeah. You know, because then John tears it apart and says, nope, first of all, salvation's bigger than you think. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it's not from the groups that you think. And that's where we worship. That's yeah. where we sing together. But we sing together, and I love this, we sing together from every tribe and tongue and nation. Yes. So the song is not even one song because mm-hmm. it's sung in all these different languages. Yeah. So it's the coming, like, it's an image of diversity. It's an image of coming mm-hmm. together. It's an mm-hmm. image of crossing boundaries. Yeah. It's an image of an expansion of imagination. Mm-hmm. If, if we reduce that down to the singing part of our services and we don't <laughs> yes. get the very significant political implication 
of a worship that does all of that, yeah. we really missed out on a lot of what John is trying to say there. Absolutely. Well, and, it, and I think it echoes back to what we see. I mean, you mentioned that Isaiah as a structure mm. for, um, for the book. And, you know, in Isaiah 58 particularly kind of re-describes what worship is right. in light of these practices and engagement. But I also think you get this interesting movement in Isaiah towards pushing out to the islands, pushing out mm-hmm. to the edges. Salvation is bigger than you think. There's a critique of um, of the internal religious powers because of what of the way they have aligned with basically with the political systems of its time, of the empires, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that sense of expansion, which I think is really interesting when Revelation picks this up and sort of says, you know, this is what worship looks like. Um, it's bigger than you think. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's just really exciting. I, and I, I mean, I, not to harp on that, but I love that <laughs> parallel. It's, it's. I don't. I only spend one chapter on it in the book, but I love that idea that John is uh, a Christian who's enamored with this apocalyptic genre and tropes, but he's still rooted enough in the Hebrew tradition to mm-hmm. know. But this is the story. Yeah, is Isaiah That's right. that goes from hey. You know, your leaders are in bed with money and you need to fix that too. Yep. The nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares mm-hmm. too. Death is going to be swallowed up. And that like that expansion from like, let's let's reorder our governments to actually the nations can become peaceful. Yeah. So actually the universe can be totally changed. Right. And he's like, oh, we can do that story in this genre yeah. that people yeah. are really into. Let's do it. Absolutely. That's, that's a yeah. fun thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Anyway, um, next question here was just going to be, so we touched on this a little bit, but many Christians struggle quite a bit with the book of Revelation, frankly, because of those many images of the wrath of God that we see in it, right? And in a sense, I mean, we actually do want a God who is wrathful against evil. I mean, like, we don't want a God who just says, oh, that's fine about evil and just sort of ignores it. No, God needs to be mad at evil because it's, wrecking his creation, right? So we want that. But with all these images, as we talked already touched on, uh, that does oftentimes, it does sometimes create a bit of a tension because we also recognize and rejoice that God is entirely loving. Um, so navigating that tension can be interesting. So I was wondering, can you tell us more about your process of struggling with the book of Revelation's imagery of God as both loving and wrathful, mm-hmm. and then how all that fits together with Jesus' gospel of peace. So one of the things I lay out at the start of the book is that I have some presuppositions when I come to Revelation. And it's this idea, first, that God is love, and mm-hmm. second, that Jesus is the closest we will come to seeing divine love embodied in human history. So mm-hmm. we can say God is love, but then we have to define, well, what is that love going to be? Mm-hmm. And people are always going to have different definitions. And my presupposition is that if you're a Christian, your mm-hmm. definition for love is the person of Jesus embodied in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working with. Yeah. So then I got to make sense of this violent imagery and stuff there. And what I see over and over again in the New Testament, I see it in Paul's writings, I see it in Revelation, certainly see it in Jesus, is that we see God's judgment and wrath against evil and we shift it one degree to God's judgment and wrath against people who do evil. Mm. Mm. And I'm not sure that's what is being talked about in the scriptures. Mm. Because I think what we're reading about the scriptures is that people who do evil are victims of evil the same way that their, their victims are victims of evil. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean there's not judgment for that. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that that is not the object of what God is trying to 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 destroy in the universe. Mm -hmm. God is not trying to get the bad people. God is trying to get the bad, if Mm. that makes sense. And you see it in language. Like, you know, one of the verses that comes up from Paul all the time is, you know, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. If you read that just plainly, he's not saying the wrath is directed at humanity, at bad people. He's saying it's at our godlessness and our wickedness, everything that we Mm -hmm. do that's terrible in the world. Yeah. God wants that to be destroyed. God mm-hmm. wants that to be ended. Mm-hmm. In Revelation, John is more explicit, I think, where he says, now comes the time to destroy that which destroys God's earth. Mm-hmm. Now, what destroys God's earth? Is it human beings? Well, I think we can be agents of evil. We can be duped by evil. We can do evil things. 
But I don't think we actually have the power to destroy God's creation. I think it is the expressions of evil at, a, at an you know, embodied or cosmic level. And that's what John is trying to say. Those things need to come to an end. Sin mm-hmm. needs to come to an end. Mm-hmm. My sin, your sin, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. is. Um, death needs to come to an end. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's judgment. Um, yes, there's wrath. But, but God's wrath is directed not at me as God's beloved creation. Mm-hmm. It is directed at the choices and the things within me that have been corrupted by the sin around me mm-hmm. and, and the systems around me and the ways that I've been implicated and participated in those things. Mm-hmm. Those things will be judged. And that may mm-hmm. not be comfortable for me. Yeah. So I'm not saying mm-hmm. um, you know, that means we all get off scot-free. Yeah. But the hope that I have in that is that however God judges those things, whatever mm-hmm. God's wrath is for those things, it will be good for me ultimately yeah. because God loves me. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think it's a real problem, or for, at least for me, it's a mistake when we say, I hear people say this all the time, God is love. Yeah, but God is also, I'm like, no, God is love. Mm-hmm. Therefore, yes. God can be wrathful. Yes. Therefore, God yeah. can be mm-hmm. just. Yes. But not God is love and wrath. God is love right. and just. Mm-hmm. No, God is love. Therefore, God will mm-hmm. act certain ways in the world. Yeah. And those ways mm-hmm. will be a reflection of love. Mm-hmm. So however I interpret wrath, God's wrath, however I interpret God's judgment, will always come back to how is this mm-hmm. an expression of God's love for me? Mm-hmm. How is this an expression of God's love for God's earth? Mm-hmm. Again, that's not always pleasant. That, I don't, yeah. don't want to yep. equate that. I don't yeah. want people to think I'm yeah. just saying, well, that means it does, it's all fairies and tulips and it's all nice. <laughs> yeah. But I am saying it will always be good for God's creation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think once you have that as a mm-hmm. frame, mm-hmm. you then interpret Revelation very differently. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm pretty clear in the book that I'm not doing an objective reading. Mm-hmm. I have presuppositions. God yeah. is love. That love is embodied in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, how am I going to read Revelation in light of that prolegomena? Yeah. And that's what I'm finding there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that um, in, I mentioned that I do truth and reconciliation work, and one of the things that comes up is the tension that arises when you experience the sin you have been uh, embroiled mm-hmm. in that isn't even necessarily a sin you actively are choosing or you don't know that you're actively choosing, but you're in a system that is that is part of this yep. cycle. And um, I think that, you know, your discussion of revelation and the in a sense, the cycles of sin that we are in that hurt not only those who uh, our sin hurts, but also hurts us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, this is something when I, we do, we do training with people around, um, you know, thinking about colonization, thinking about the harms Christianity has done. As a Christian, I'm having these conversations. And one of the things that I talk about is, you know, I actually want God to put to death those things so that life can live. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that, in what how you picture what that wrath means, because it is a loving act to put that to death yeah. mm-hmm. um, so that I can flourish while the person alongside me can also flourish. Um, and so I think that's a really like a powerful piece of what that looks like in really practical ways. Benefiting from colonization of Canada as a settler here mm-hmm. makes me calloused to the suffering of those who have been colonized, mm-hmm. who've had their land stolen, who have done this. The goodness of God is the thing that will burn away that callous yeah. so that I can feel emotive towards yes. someone, yes. that I can experience that pain with them, That's and right. then I can participate in the, re- in the reconciliation of that. Absolutely. But the, the stripping away of that thing that allows me to stay distanced from it mm-hmm. is not a comfortable thing. No. But that's mm-hmm. God's love for me. That's God's goodness yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. And that plays out in so many different ways constantly in my life. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I get through one thing, I become aware of another. Yeah. That's what, I mean, traditionally we would call that sanctification. Yes. But that's yeah. that ongoing process of it's like, oh, now I got this thing to figure out. And yeah. now I got mm-hmm. this thing to make sense of. Here. Absolutely. You know, um, I've been working on a commentary on the minor prophets. And um, when there's an entire section talking about like refining fire, mm. the purifying fire. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that we sometimes emphasize the sort of um, almost like the... Uh, we forget maybe what it feels like for refining to happen yeah. mm-hmm. so that beauty comes from it. Right. I mean, the whole point is actually 
the, the things that need to be pushed out will be pushed out so that the beauty can come, so the good can come. Mm-hmm. Um, but the process for something that's in the fire <laughs> is not a fun process. Right. Um, it's not like I always, I often think of like the, you know, the metal or the pot being like, um, maybe less <laughs> refining. Um, but, um, but the, but that that is actually a piece of what it looks like. And, and this connects maybe to my next question, which is how have you seen this process um, preaching on this, studying this, thinking about this, um, shaping your own spiritual life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already talked a lot about sort of the, the political aspects of it. So that's certainly part of it. Um, I do think uh, a lot of it comes to how, so at a pastoral level, I think mm-hmm. it, it does radically reshape the ways that I think about um, what it means to journey with people that are discovering Jesus and figuring out you know, the implications of, of Jesus' message in their life. Um, that first of all, I have very little pressure at this point in my career to rush people along in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to be, you know, a, a trustworthy guide to help them discover that thing. Mm. But then ultimately, what I want them to, to come to understand is that, look, um, if you can get this idea that God loves you completely, and that God will always love you completely, then that will slowly, more slowly, but more faithfully reorient your steps mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. So I can point out the things to you, you know, hey, now that you're a Christian, you shouldn't do this, 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 and this, hmm. right? And that's going to put more pressure on somebody um, to feel like they measure up to more things, which is going to make them feel a little bit more afraid of God and a little bit more mm-hmm. separated from mm-hmm. God which creates more of this kind of like defensiveness Mm -hmm. and this sort of withdrawing, which creates more sense of, I don't sure if I'm quite loved, which creates more of this sense of, uh, because I'm not sure I'm not loved, I actually need to be a little bit greedy so I can look after myself. And I need Mm. to be a little bit guarded with people because I'm not sure if I can be vulnerable with them. Whereas if I can start people on that process by saying, "Uh, no, you're welcomed into this, you are already loved perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing you need to do. But here's what you can do mm-hmm. is you can slowly start to know yourself that way. And the more you know yourself that way, the less you'll need these things that you, you, you kind of do as, as safety nets and yes. barriers and walls around you. Mm-hmm. You'll need those a little less and less. Yeah. And your politics will be a little more oriented to the people around you. And the Mm -hmm. ways that you think about economics will be a little more generous. Mm -hmm. And then that will let you know, like that will feed into the sense of your loved. And Mm -hmm. then that will feed into the sense of you need these, what, you know, in the past we might identify as sin, you'll need those a little bit less. And you can kind of send people on this virtuous journey Mm -hmm. of like knowing we're a little bit more loved, needing our sin a little bit less, knowing we're a little bit loved, rather than what we often do in church, which is pointing at the bad things, which makes us feel bad, which makes us feel more distance, which makes us need the bad things even more. And this sort of sense of, um, hey, judgment Mm -hmm. is good for you. God is good for you. Mm -hmm. Love is good for you. Generosity, all of these things are for you because God is on your side. that can set people on a very different journey into yeah. and through Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, I hope, I hope mm-hmm. that that comes through in everything that I do as, mm-hmm. as a pastor, in sermons, but also in interactions and in the ways yeah. that I lead community. You know, it's something that I talk about in the story of Exodus in terms of the framing of where the law is, that obedience is a secondary motion. Right. So the, the first motion is, um, see, God says, see how I carried you on eagle's yeah. wings. And out of love, right? That's the first step, God's love. And so this is a response, right? But it's not, please just be obedient, 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 mm-hmm. so that I, you may be all of you. Yeah, you're chosen right? and you're already chosen. You're, so now, yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and so there, um, I like to encourage people to think about what is, how, if we thought first mm-hmm. about the movement of God's deep love to care for us, protect us, you know, be with us. And then obedience flowed from that. Mm -hmm. That's a really different way of Mm -hmm. modeling what that looks like. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess another question now for you, Jeremy. If if you wanted a Christian to come away with one idea from your book, well, what would you want them to get out of it? So, you know, as a big picture, 
which is not even at all related to the actual writing of the book. But I think what I would want people to do is center Jesus in their Christianity more than we tend to do. Hmm. I think we tend to center Christianity. Um, and I'm part of the Christian tradition. I, that, is, yeah. that is the narrative through which I encounter God and I encounter Jesus. But we encounter a religious scaffolding. We center that more than we center the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could always come back to how are we getting to know the person of Jesus who comes to us you know, through these gospels and then through that be the lens through which we read Paul, we read Revelation, mm-hmm. we reread the Hebrew scriptures because you know, I think as Christians, we, we read everything through the lens of Jesus. But I think if we did that, that's, that's really sort of at the mm-hmm. core of what I'm trying to say in this book. And mm-hmm. then I'm trying to flesh that out in terms of, okay, well, what if we did that in Revelation? Yeah. 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 But even, be, you know, cause, because honestly, do you need to know, do you need to understand Revelation to follow Jesus? I'm not sure you really do. <laughs> I think it's an interesting <laughs> book. I hope people pick it up. But that's what I would really hope people get yeah. is let's center back on Jesus. Let's keep that as our foundation and then let's build out from there. And here's an example of how we can do that with one of the most difficult books in the Bible. That's what I'm trying to say. That's wonderful. Nice. So so we're now kind of in the closing section yeah. of our talk. Um, and so we love closing out with um, Marginalia with a few fun questions about your life um, and kind of goofy questions for some of them. <laughs> so, uh, John, if you want to start with one of those, that'd be great. All right, Jeremy. What? is your favorite movie or film and why? <laughs> so uh, I, I don't even know how I would answer that all time, but I, I'll give you a couple. So this week, my favorite movie was Nope. I just watched it for Halloween. Okay. Okay. Uh, Jordan Peele is just a mm-hmm. fascinating director and the way he puts spins on sort of this horror genre. And in Nope, he does this, I won't spoil anything for anyone mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it, but I really creative spin on the alien abduction sort of trope and stuff. And he is just, I think, a very fascinating director Mm -hmm. doing some really neat stuff. Um, In some ways, as a parallel to Revelation, where a lot of what he's doing is he's taking a trope that you know really well, and then he's flipping it upside down on you. And that's always just such a fun revelation in that. So that's one. (laughs) That's a fun revelation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, uh, And then the other one in the last year that I've seen, as far as an experience in the theater, was Mm. Dune, which Mm. just as a visual and particularly as an auditory experience. It mm. was just, it was one of the best movies to see in the theater. Mm. I reread uh, the trilogy this summer and I went and saw the first film and it's not, it's not my favorite story or anything, but uh, it, it was quite a spectacle. I really enjoyed that. So there's a couple from recent. <laughs> awesome. So. Awesome. So, okay. If you could have an all expense paid trip um, anywhere, where'd you go? Yeah. Uh, so I have a sister that just moved to Sydney, Australia about a year ago um, so first of all, it'd be great to go see her mm-hmm. and her kids and her partner there. But uh, also, I've never been to Australia. So I, mm-hmm. I think if I could honestly go anywhere, it probably would be to do a visit to family. And awesome. it's half because I miss my sister and it's half because I've never been to Australia. And it's so. pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. I've so, heard. Enough. I've yeah. been there <laughs> So but, uh, Jared McKenna, who wrote the foreword of the book, is from Australia. So I got yeah. to at least do a few <laughs> few Skype calls down to Australia nice. this year. So. Nice. I'm um, working on a book together with another uh, Australian scholar. And I keep going like, so how could we arrange this? Um, that I could come and maybe teach there or visit you. So, and yeah. trying to find the time <laughs> That's difference. Right. That's quite, quite the difference. Let's make that so. work. Yeah. So. <sighs> Very good. All right. So if you could have coffee or tea, probably coffee, uh, with any three historical figures excluding Jesus and Paul, <laughs> who would you choose and why? <laughs> so number one would be Eddie Vedder. Yeah. I, every time I get a ticket to a concert, I'm always like, I mean, maybe... Like, I'll just be walking in and I'll bump into Somehow. him. Yeah. We'll just, I'll be like, this guy's really cool. We'll be friends. Uh, I have 44 and I still have fantasies about that. So that would be yeah. one. Yeah. Um, Rennie Girard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died in 2015. Uh, but I have, uh, you know, read most mm-hmm. of his stuff. Well, all of his stuff, actually. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I would love to have a conversation with him. Uh, and then maybe a different genre. I, I, you know... Maybe Octavia Butler. Uh, she's oh, a writer that I've, I really love yeah. some of her fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and she passed away in the 2000s somewhere. Mm. But she's a writer that I I think I've read everything that she's written mm. as well. So that, okay. that would be pretty high on my list. So that awesome. be interesting getting those three people together. That, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah Rennie Gerard, Eddie Vedder, <laughs> and Octavia Butler, and myself having a coffee. That, that would be amazing, actually. I would be a really <laughs> fascinating conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, 
if you were asked to describe yourself in three words, what words would you use and why? <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, man. I all I want to think of is how my wife would describe me or some of <laughs> right. the staff that work with me yeah, here would describe yeah. me. Um, I would say headstrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't need to nod on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I like, yes, I've worked with them. I, I'm an eight on an Enneagram, and that's one I work. I like I, I value that in myself, but it's definitely one that I have to be aware of. So headstrong, I think uh, optimistic. Um, I think I am optimistic about the world, but I'm also I tend to be entrepreneurial and optimistic about things that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one would be. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, maybe entrepreneurial. I love starting things. I love trying things. Mm-hmm. I love uh, I love experimenting with things, and I love I love diving. In, I love grabbing something and just like diving into it and learning everything, and then yeah. moving on to the next thing. So I love mm-hmm. starting and and trying things. So. Do you think that's affected um, like your church planting and kind of that as a part of what you've done? Is because you have those qualities? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think one of the things that I have loved so much about this community in particular is that this community has been so willing to continue to evolve with me and with our staff team as it's grown Mm -hmm. and changed. Um, I know that that's easier earlier in the lifespan of an organization, but that is the thing that has kept me um, I think as excited about community as I was starting it eight years ago. I think mm. I think if I started something and that was the end of it, yeah. I would probably stay for four or five years and move on to something new. But mm-hmm. being part of a community that continues to change and evolve and try different things, um, you know, COVID was certainly not something any of us would have asked for. Mm. Um, yeah. But especially in the first six months of it, it was like, oh, look at all these new challenges. Then we figured out those challenges and it got really boring and I wanted to get back <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I think that definitely has moved me into that area and, and probably has kept me around. And then has, I think a part of why I tried writing a book was that's a new thing to try. Let's see if I'm good yeah. at it. Yeah. Um, I think you are. Yeah, I mean, I wrote, I wrote two books during COVID. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think this, this was the second one. I think this mm-hmm. one was better. Like, I think I got better at it. And mm-hmm. I think that was encouraging to me. Like, yeah. it, it's not that I needed to be great at something, mm-hmm. but I needed to be like, oh, I, can I get better at this? Can I improve? Yeah. And that's yeah. always fun. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Very good. So, what's the best compliment you've ever received? Yeah. Um, so, regularly... I get people who tell me I look like Jesus. And I know they mean the hair. <laughs> but I choose to believe that they're talking about my character. And I know they're not, but I choose to believe that. So I'm gonna, that's the best compliment that's I've wonderful. got. Even though I know they're not talking as, about what I am. As surprisingly, I never get the I look like Jesus. Just no. it, I don't know why. No, um, I, I still remember. <laughs> it's probably like 10 years ago uh, when I first grew a beard. And uh, I had been away. I was actually, I, I, was, in, I was in Africa and mm-hmm. I forgot to bring a razor. And I was like, whatever, I'll just grow a beard. And then I got home and I had a beard. And I was like, I like it, I kept it. Mm-hmm. And that first day somebody joked and they're, look, they're like, hey, you look like Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I also, I grew a beard recently. <laughs> and they didn't laugh at that, but I thought it was <laughs> Uh, actually, okay, this this is really funny. I don't know if you know this. Um, I was having a conversation with someone when I was trying to identify who you were. Yeah. And they were like, oh, the guy who looks like Jesus. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that pastor. Yeah, Swedish um, Jesus. So, yeah. so just so you know, um, that is a widely held belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, if you could have one meal, uh, not necessarily for the rest of your life, but like just whenever you wanted. Yeah. Um, and it had no negative effects. Um, what would it be? Uh, there'd be a lot. I, uh, am a vegetarian, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, it would be, I would be pizza. Like, and not any, I love any pizza, but Neapolitan style pizza mm. is like just so good. And yeah. like fresh tomatoes, mm-hmm. fresh mozzarella, basil, that's it. I could eat that for the rest of my life. We, mm. my wife and I got an uni pizza oven oh, this nice. year. Nice. So we cook Neapolitan pizza in Very our backyard. Good. It's amazing. I would that's eat that awesome. every day if I could. My daughter and I actually go to one of, there's a Neapolitan pizza place that's like around this area. There's several of them, yeah. but there's one that we go to that's like ours, or at least nice. how we think of it. And it's become like a special thing that we go and do as a mother daughter. Oh, and I love it. Um, and, and it's, it's delicious and it's 
just a really fun like thing yeah. to do together. So. I've worked really hard on my double zero pizza dough. Mm-hmm. I do a Polish and I Ooh. ferment it and I work really hard on that. Fancy. Um, <laughs> but you can get really good pizza dough at Lena's uh, uh-huh. just up center street. You can get great, you can get really good Italian tomatoes and everything. So that's good when I'm lazy. I just head up there, get all my ingredients, <laughs> come home, make a pizza. So. I, nice. This, might, you know this for, might turn into pizza. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Advice. This, this is the good. advantage of being with someone in the yeah. same city. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Jeremy, thank you so much. This has been a real delight and a pleasure today. Um, so, just, yeah, just thanks for joining us today. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'd like to thank the listeners or watchers, I suppose, for those who are live streaming for joining us. Um, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. You know, if you'd like to, if you like this and you want to help us out, please feel free to share the podcast with others. Um, subscribe on your pop- podcast player. So, thank you so much. And thank you to Commons Church uh, for hosting us tonight. It was really, really fun. So, thank you. Appreciate it so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.